The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is May 3rd, 2018, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Colonel Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff at the AHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Dr. Brooks E. Kleber Memorial Lecture Series. The speaker's featured book tonight, as you saw, is on sale behind the lecture room and also in our uh, bookshop, uh, and we will have the author signing the uh, books after the lecture. All proceeds from the book sales go to the Army Heritage Center Foundation uh, to help in all their efforts uh, to, to help us out here at the AHEC and support us here at the AHEC. Now, tonight's lecture honors the memory of Dr. Brooks E. Kleber, the former Deputy Chief Historian of the Office uh, of uh, of the Office of the Chief of Military History. Brooks Kleber was a uh, native of Trenton, New Jersey, but graduated right here in Carlisle at Dickinson College in 1940. He entered the Army in August of 1941 and went to officer candidate school and was ended up assigned to the 90th Infantry Division. He and his unit arrived in Normandy on D-Day plus five, and he earned the Bronze Star for gallantry in action. He was captured by the Germans on June 26, 1944, and remained a guest of the German army until the end of the war. In early 1945, as the Allies closed in, the German army began moving POWs away from the more vulnerable camps. Brooks Kleber was ordered to make one of these moves, and when he went, he took with him two books in addition to his personal effects. The books were titled A History of Colonial America and The Common People, 1746 to 1938. It says a great deal about the man that he treasured those books enough to carry them with him throughout the remainder of the war until he was liberated by American troops in 1945. After being honorably discharged from the army in 1945 and returning to civilian life, he entered the University of Pennsylvania where he completed his master's and his doctorate. While pursuing his doctorate, he was hired in 1950 as the historian for the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. In 1963, when the Chemical Corps was finally dissolved, he became the chief historian for the Continental Army Command at Fort Story, Virginia. In 1973, he became the chief, he became the chief historian for the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command at Fort Story. And in 1980, he was appointed as the deputy chief historian of the U.S. Army, where he remained until his retirement in 1987. Dr. Kleber was active in the U.S. Army Reserve from his discharge in 1945 until his retirement in 1987, attaining the rank of colonel. Near the end of his career, Dr. Kleber presented the books he carried as a POW to the U.S. Army Military History Institute, now a part of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, and we are pleased and humbled to preserve both them and the story of the sacrifice they represent. Those books are on display in our reading room if you would ever like to swing by and take a look at them. So tonight, and all the other Brooks Kleber uh, Memorial Lectures, we honor Dr. Brooks Kleber's memory by presenting the next in our series of lectures. So now I'm honored to re uh, present our speaker for tonight, Dr. Michael Nyberg. Dr. Nyberg is the inaugural chair of the War Studies of the United States Army War College. 
His published work specializes in the First and Second World War, uh, World Wars, notably the American and French experiences. The Wall Street Journal, Journal named his Dance of the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War I, as one of the five best books ever written about the First World War. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Michael Nyberg. Thanks, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Colonel Mangelsdorf. Thank you to my students, my colleagues, my friends who have come out on this beautiful, beautiful, finally beautiful warm night here in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's fantastic to be back at AHEC. It's fantastic to be in this facility that has been absolutely central to my research and to my work since even before there was this building, back when it was the old MHI uh, over in Upton Hall where I came to do some of my initial dissertation research. So it's really a pleasure to be here. And some of the sources from this talk actually came from the reading room right over here. So if you haven't had a chance to explore it, if you've never been over there, I highly recommend that you do it. We talk a lot in the United States about how the First World War put the United States on the global stage. And I'd like here to discuss that theme and some of the complications, both intended and unintended, that flowed from it. This painting that I chose here is by a man named Stuyvesant Van Veen. It's called the Paris Peace Conference, and he painted it in 1932. And as you can see, it's a very strongly anti-war painting. Stuyvesant Van Veen uh, was in favor of the First World War, in favor of American entry in the First World War. The failure of the Paris Peace Conference to produce the kind of world that he thought it should made him, like many Americans, into a pacifist. He left New York City. He moved to the great city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he painted the murals that are on the downtown post office still today, about a block or so from where the Penguins are playing the Capitals right now which is where I would be if I weren't giving this lecture, but here I am. Uh, no, Jim, no, no, no. No, no, no. I work for the provost, remember. Uh, what I want to do here tonight is give you a little bit of insight into how this happened, how the United States approached the end of the First World War, the decisions that the United States made, and the way that this war did compel the United States to play a role on the world stage, for better or for worse. And I want to, as I'm doing that, I want to highlight that the periodization we use for the First World War in most of the West is 1914 to 1918, a periodization that really only works for Britain, France, and Germany. For most of the rest of the world, this conflict either began before, as it does for Serbia, or it starts a little later, as it did for Italy, or it ends in the 1920s. So this is a kind of artificial periodization that we tend to use here. And the First World War period we conceive in the West really as ending on June 29, 1919, when the Paris Peace Conference ended and the Treaty of Versailles was signed. For other people, the First World War created conflict as conflicts began in Central and Eastern Europe. And there's big debate among historians as to the exact reasons for all of this, but I don't want to get into that here today. What I want to do is talk about this man, who I want to use as a kind of symbol of the transition and power, transition in American power and American thinking as the First World War came to an end. His name is William Lynn Westerman, and in the summer of 1917, he was more or less minding his own business and living a life of the mild-mannered professor. He kind of looks like a mild-mannered professor there. He was, in fact, a professor of ancient history at the University of Wisconsin from the small town of Belleville, Illinois and he was a specialist on reading papyrus scrolls. You're probably wondering why I'm telling you this. He was, in fact, partly educated in Germany, and a couple of months into the new semester at the University of Wisconsin, he was named to this group, or invited to join this group. There he is in the square up there. This is a group called the Inquiry, which in 1921 reformed as the Council on Foreign Relations. In September 1917, the 
the inquiry was given permission to form as the world's true first true think tank. This is September 1917. This is well before the end of the war had begun to come in sight. President Wilson's advisor, Colonel Edward House, thought it might be a good idea to start to get some academics together to think about what the post-war world might look like and how to advise the President and the State Department on exactly what kinds of things the Americans ought to be thinking about as the war came to a close. The papers are today at Yale University, as are some of the maps that I'm about to show you. One of the papers is a note from Edward House to the committee members telling them, spend whatever you need to spend, send me the receipts, which is a nice thing to have. That's an open-ended grant right there. There are some fairly well-known individuals on here. Sitting in the front row is a man by the name of Isaiah Bowman, later to become president of Johns Hopkins University and to become a chief advisor to President Franklin Roosevelt on what the post-war world should look like after the next world war. Bowman was a geographer uh, who particularly interested himself in East Asia and in the Middle East. Why am I telling you all this? In the summer of 1917, William Westerman was looking at papyrus scrolls. In December 1919, William Lynn Westerman is in a room in Paris where a decision is about to be made about whether the Turkish capital of Constantinople should stay in the state of Turkey or whether the Allies should give it to Greece. In those two years, I'm using him here as a symbol, the United States has gone from becoming a country that had no opinion, no interest, no concern in making this decision to a man by the name of William Lynn Westerman dropping his papyrus scrolls and being involved in that very decision. At that meeting, an English official by the name of Lionel Curtis told Westerman that the British could not take on any new mandates for what he called, quote, the development of backwards peoples. We have more than enough, end quotation. He told the United States that it was time for America to come in and help. Would the United States, he asked Westerman, take control of the Dardanelles, Constantinople, Armenia, and part of Anatolia while the world community figured out what to do with them? This is obviously way above Westerman's pay grade, and it creates a big problem for the United States. The United States was not bound by any diplomatic agreement that it had not signed, it had not declared war on the Ottoman Empire, and it had no stated policy as to what should happen to the Ottoman Empire at the end of the war. Nevertheless, there they were. Westerman realized exactly the position that he was in. He understood how uninformed he was. He understood how uninformed the members of the inquiry were. He especially recognized how uninformed the members of the State Department were, and above all, how uninformed President Wilson was. He said, quote, no one knows just what is in the president's mind beyond vague phrases and beautiful ideas. Here's one of those vague phrases and beautiful ideas. This is point 10 of Woodrow Wilson's famous 14 points which reads that the people of Austria-Hungary, whose place among the nations we wish to see safeguarded and assured, should be accorded the freest opportunity to autonomous development. Good luck making policy on the basis of that. Grace is shaking her head yes, so I'm taking that to be a good sign since she's from the State Department. Forget for a moment the vagueness inherent in this idea. The United States had only declared war on the Austro-Hungarian Empire very late in the war, and then only symbolically. The US was not bound by previous diplomatic agreements on the future of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the United States had absolutely no plans to get involved in Central Europe. Yet there was the inquiry making suggestions to the President and the State Department about what they should do. Woodrow Wilson's only guidance to them was, tell me what is right and I will fight for it. Why? What is pushing the United States into this position? One, I think, is that the United States is the only great power really left on the board at the end of the First World War. Germany is, of course, defeated. Russia is in the middle of civil war. Great Britain certainly has its hands full with trying to put its empire back together, 
and the French are showing an interest to be involved, but little power to do it. Second, and the big problem for Woodrow Wilson, was the universalist nature of his message. Wilson did not argue that the things he was talking about were only good for certain parts of the world. At least in his rhetoric, he said that these were universal values. Now, when push comes to shove, Wilson backs off that considerably. And third, and maybe most important, American leaders saw a need to separate America's vision from the vision of Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. They worried that if the United States did not demonstrate leadership in this, the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe would merely turn to Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Even if the United States did not want to be involved, it had largely spun this web for itself. Or, as Wilson said to his propagandist George Creel, quote, I am wondering whether you have not unconsciously spun a net for me from which there is no escape, end quote. It's a classic Woodrow Wilson passive-aggressive comment. So the inquiry got to work. They did detailed work. They started looking for reliable information on Central Europe. This is the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. Who lives there? What language do they speak? What ethnicity do they identify themselves as? What do they do for a living? The maps go all the way down to oat and rye production in various parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's a progressive mindset. The answer is out there. It's just a question of finding enough data and enough analysis to come up with the right response. Railroad lines are important to them. Canals. Who are these people? Which of them rises to the level of nation? Which of them should get their own state? And will those states be ethnically consistent, economically sustainable, and capable of defending themselves when push comes to shove? I should note, this is a virtually ahistorical approach, by which I mean the members of the inquiry are not interested in how these people came to live in these places or in their own vision of themselves. They're only interested in these kind of snapshot data. right? They think the history is just going to cloud matters. That is, they're aware of the problem. And it's interesting to me that there aren't many historians involved, except for someone who studies ancient papyrus scrolls, which isn't exactly the field that I would have picked. They are largely geographers. They are economists. They are agronomists trying to figure this way through. One of the commissioners on the inquiry understood the problem quite clearly, saying that if you went by this logic, Italy could well lay a claim on New York City, given the number of Italians living there. Nevertheless, they came up with ideas. This is another map. All these maps are in Yale University today. They're in the Spencer Library because that's where Edward House's papers are. This is an idea that predated the First World War. I thought this was an inquiry map. I was just at a conference in uh, Trento in Italy, which is that black triangle in the bottom left-hand corner of that map. And they showed me a version of this map, completely by coincidence, that actually dates to 1910. The idea here is to recreate the Austro-Hungarian Empire not as a series of individual states, but to recreate it as a federated republic with one central government. An interesting idea that, of course, does not come to pass. The inquiry also understood the other central problem that they faced. It might be one thing for the United States to put out ideas about what they thought the world ought to look like at the end of the war, but how would the United States enforce those ideas? What would be, to use the Carlisle vocabulary, the instruments of power that the United States could use? Would the United States send an army into Central Europe to enforce these borders? Very few people think they will. Will the United States use economics as a way to force the Europeans to accept his vision? Again, something Wilson did not want to do. Could a League of Nations or some other supranational organization step in and do this? And would the people living in this part of the world 
accept these borders? All really good questions. And the even larger question, what will this part of the world look like if the United States does nothing at all? Could it look worse? It is, to use the phrase that we've used here at the Army War College for a couple of years, a wicked problem, by which we mean a problem that really has no solution, a problem that's going to upset 49% of people no matter what you do. This is a particularly interesting idea. It's going to create a Yugoslav state, a greater Slav state, and a Czechoslovak state with a corridor created in between to connect them. I'm not exactly sure how they thought that this might work. What's interesting to me about this map is the way in which so many possibilities are open, so many potential answers to the problem of what to do with this area of Central and Eastern Europe, and what the United States' role really ought to be in putting this into place. Or should America's role be to do nothing, which is, of course, always an option. The inquiry believed that they weren't there to make policy recommendations as much as they were to provide information. Nevertheless, in the very structuring of these maps, they're making recommendations. They're putting ideas on the map. I've seen a couple of my military colleagues here shaking their heads a little bit, and you're right to do it, because the question, of course, becomes, how can you actually put this into practice? And one man who thought you could not put this into practice has his papers right here in this building, and that is one of the guys, I think, who had the best understanding of what the end of the war was going to look like, and that's General Tasker Bliss. And I want to talk about him just a little bit, because he is so interesting. He is a native Pennsylvanian, former commander of the US Army War College, and a man who, when stressed and confused, liked to read Thucydides in the original Greek. Got that, Chris? Um, could a political solution work in this post-war security environment? Tasker Bliss was trying to figure this out. William Westerman called him, and I quote, the ablest man in Europe and the one peace commissioner who will really study and study hard to make himself acquainted with what he must know. West Point educated, Bucknell College educated, again, read ancient Greek, read ancient Latin, drank a lot of whiskey, and could not get the attention of President Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference. Met with him very briefly and only twice. Bliss's argument was that new nations are not necessarily virtuous merely because they're small and new. What Bliss saw was a central and eastern Europe that would try to take advantage of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire and to a lesser extent, the collapse of the Ottoman, Russian, and German empires, in order to settle what he saw as old ancient scores. And this is what he wrote to his wife. The submerged nations are coming to the surface. As soon as they appear, they fly at someone's throat. They are like mosquitoes, vicious from the moment of their birth. And Bliss worried, both about the United States making commitments to this part of the world, and maybe more importantly, about the United States either intentionally or unintentionally fueling these conflicts. The United States government was taking all the excess weaponry that the United States had at the end of the First World War and selling it to these new nations, both as a way of projecting power, giving the weapons to the people you want to give them to, and to save them the expense of transporting the weapons back. Bliss wrote in another letter to his wife that the best thing the United States could possibly do with those weapons is wait until the ships were halfway over the Atlantic Ocean and throw it all overboard, so that the United States was not inadvertently fueling the next round of conflict. And I'm quoting mostly from letters that Bliss wrote to his wife, which is a really interesting insight. Right? It's a very private, very personal kind of insight. And he's really worried that all of Europe is going to come apart. He's worried that the Germans won't sign the Treaty of Versailles when it's presented to them. He's worried about a Bolshevik revolution that's going to go all the way through Europe. It's not until late May that he writes her a letter and says, I think it might be OK for you to come to Europe soon. 
And it's not until mid-June that he tells her, okay, it's okay for you to come. I don't think we're gonna have a global revolution. It's okay for you to come. And this is to Paris, relatively safe Paris. Here's another one of Woodrow Wilson's vague phrases and beautiful ideas. This is point 12 of the 14 points. The Turkish portion of the present Ottoman Empire should be assured to secure sovereignty. But the other nationalities, which are now under Turkish rule, should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolute unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. And the Dardanelles should be permanently opened as a free passage to the ships and commerce of all nations under international guarantees. I kind of get the second part of that. Again, figuring out the first part of that is going to be incredibly complicated. Again, forget the vagueness of the idea. The United States never declared war on the Ottoman Empire at all. The United States never had any conflict with the Ottoman Empire. The United States had absolutely no plans to get involved in the Middle East. Yet here's Woodrow Wilson talking about recreating the Turkish and Ottoman portions of the empire. And there's William Westerman sitting in a meeting to determine whether Constantinople, one of the world's most important cities, will remain in Turkish hands or be given to the Greeks as compensation for the war. This is a remarkable moment of American power coming to the fore. The Americans learn about this. Some of you may know about this. This is a map called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, initially the Sykes-Picot-Sazonov Agreement, done in 1915. At the beginning of the First World War, neither Britain, nor France, nor the Russians wanted to see the Ottoman Empire torn apart. They wanted it to remain in place, but they wanted it weaker. By about the middle of 1915, after Gallipoli, after Mesopotamia, after news about the Armenian Genocide, the great powers changed their minds and decided that it would be perfectly fine to tear the Ottoman Empire apart. And they came up with this map, which is now today called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, although the Russians were initially involved as well. Everything you see that's in pink there, which is roughly today's modern Iraq, most of modern Iraq, will go directly to the British Empire. Everything that's in blue, which includes parts of what are today Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey, will go to the French. Everything that's in area A there will be administered by the French in the name of the international community. Everything that's B in there, roughly today's Jordan and parts of Iraq, will be administered by Great Britain. Top secret, no one's supposed to know about it. Most people in Britain and France don't even know about it. And you'll notice a little yellow area on the map they couldn't figure out what to do with that they decided to call Palestine, a term that the Ottomans didn't really use. They decided to revive it. We'll figure out what to do with Palestine later. We're 70 years on from, well, more than, or 100 years on from that decision. In 1918, 1917, when the Bolsheviks take over Russia, they go into the state archives and they find this map and the negotiations that went behind it. And to embarrass the British and the French, they publish it. In other words, they try to tell the rest of the world, look, the British and French really are fighting this war to extend their own empires. The Americans are furious, in part because the United States had never been told about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and in part because it divides the world into spheres of influence, which is the exact opposite of what Woodrow Wilson was talking about in point 12. The Americans were angry. They were also angry with the British response, which was to say to the Americans, look, if you're really unhappy about this, why don't you take the mandate? You, we'll create an area C out here that is Armenia and the north coast of Turkey. And they even hold out the lore that maybe the Americans would like to have an area D, which would be Palestine. And the American response is, absolutely not. That's not what we're in this war for. That's not what we're here to do. 
The Americans also know, as do the British and the French, that this Sykes-Picot agreement conflicts with promises made to a Saudi, an Arabian prince, I shouldn't say Saudi, an Arabian prince, named Amir Faisal, who I'll show you in just a minute. It also conflicts with something called the Balfour Declaration, which promised that Palestine could become a homeland for the Jewish people, probably some way inside the British Empire when all this is over. The United States government was not a party to any of those agreements. So the United States has a couple of options. It can go along with these agreements, being fully aware that it doesn't like any of them, or it can try to revise them in the face of opposition from the British and the French themselves. To the best of my knowledge, nobody, at this time period anyway, took the step to say, why don't we figure out what these people actually want? Which is consistent with Woodrow Wilson's vision that some peoples got that right and some peoples didn't. The Czechs, the Hungarians, they get that right. Whoever's living in the Middle East is not. Tasker Bliss, in particular, was furious about the way that these decisions were being reached. Bliss understood the United States was now in an extremely tough position. It could back the British and French in the Middle East, in which case the United States ties its own prestige to the very imperialism it's trying to get rid of, or the United States could undertake the opportunity to try to change the post-war political arrangement in the Middle East at the cost of opposition from its allies and at the cost of not really knowing how it would be able to do that. And Bliss wrote this wonderful two paragraphs. It seems certain promises were made to the Arabs in the early days of the war, and now they are so unkind as to insist on these promises being fulfilled. The consequence is a grand triangular row, by which he meant the British, the French, and the Arabs, although it's still a triangular row. Maybe it's a dodecahedron row. I don't know today. A triangular row with insistence on the part of the Arabs that the matter be arbitrated by the United States, the one great power that is not invested in any of these agreements. I myself have declared that I would not touch the question of Syria, even with a pole long enough to reach from here to Syria, unless I were positively ordered to do so by my government. This isn't our fight, stay out of it. But even in 1919, Bliss saw the risks of the Middle East creating future conflict and American interest in at least trying to prevent the future conflicts. He was, however, far less hopeful about what American military power could do. Bliss understood that the United States had no core interest in the region at this point, a view that will, of course, change by the 1940s when we start to learn about how much oil is inside what is today Saudi Arabia. Bliss called the Middle East a string of differently colored beautiful beads, with the Ottoman Empire as the string holding the beads together. The string, he argued, would have to be cut, but then the pieces would just fall around in disorder once you did. He wasn't sure in his own mind what role the United States should play in picking them back up. The Americans, nevertheless, as, as this comment notes, were the country that the Arabs were looking to to figure out a way to solve this problem. This is a moment that the Harvard historian Erez Manella has called the Wilsonian moment. It's a period in time when almost everybody around the world is reading into Woodrow Wilson's idealism and expecting that it applies to them. People like Wen I Kwok, a Vietnamese patriot who came to Paris hoping to meet with Woodrow Wilson. He doesn't, so he goes to Moscow, changes his name to Ho Chi Minh, and begins to think about Bolshevism as an answer instead. Leaders in Egypt, in Korea, Kenya, all over the world are starting to become disenchanted with the obvious reality in front of them that Woodrow Wilson is saying one thing, but the Americans mean something else. I don't think Tasker Bliss would be terribly surprised to know that we are still in the Middle East 100 years later and that it is just as complicated a place now as it was then. This is Amir Faisal. He's played by what? Omar Sharif in the T.E. Lawrence movie. Faisal told Westerman that he had not freed Syria to make it French, 
He, Faisal, was now ready to let the blood run out of his body to flee it, to free it from the French. Does the United States want to see a war in Syria? Does it want to see violence affecting one of its principal allies? The Americans were by and large not terribly impressed with the Arabs. The Americans said that they had a sense of superiority and entitlement. And Westerman said the Arabs were, quote, like children, pleased at being noticed, vain and superficial, close quote. Nevertheless, Westerman, like most Americans, became a deep admirer of Emir Faisal, who wanted to create a federation of Arab states with himself at the head, what Westerman called a kind of Arab George Washington. He was a Hashemite, which meant that he had connections back to the Prophet Muhammad. He had led the Arab revolt in 1916, and he had worked carefully with T.E. Lawrence, and he wanted American help. The question now was what to do about it. Westerman wanted the Americans involved in the region because he thought the Americans were better positioned than the British and French, who, because of their imperial past in this region, would never be trusted by the locals. And he wanted the chance for the United States to prove that the Americans meant what they said. He wanted the Americans to use rhetorical, moral, economic, and if necessary, military power to back up a just and lasting peace in the Middle East. Good luck. And you can see what Westerman said here. Voila, great is Lawrence and great is Faisal. I am a convert. There's Emir Faisal right there, dressed in Arab headdress for the Paris Peace Conference. There is T.E. Lawrence in his British uniform and an Arab headdress in a very, very unusual role at the Paris Peace Conference, a British officer serving as an advisor to Emir Faisal. What is to become of the Middle East in its post-Ottoman Empire phase? What part should the United States play in it? These questions are first asked in 1919, and we are asking them still today. Those questions are now on the table in a way they never could have been in 1914, when no state, not Russia, not Britain, not France, certainly not the United States, thought that they would be facing this kind of a situation. A colleague of mine who studies the Middle East refers to what we're dealing with now in the Middle East, the wars there now, as the wars of the Ottoman succession. His argument being that we still haven't figured out how to pick up those beautifully colored beads and figure out how to go together. Now, just to give you the little footnote here, in 1921, the British made the decision that although Emir Faisal was from Arabia, he was not going to get the Kingdom of Arabia. They sent him instead to Iraq, a place he had never been, and they set up a plebiscite that gave a 97% approval for him to become King Faisal I of Iraq, a country made up of Kurds, Shia, and Sunni that the Americans and British thought might somehow hold together. Arabia was given to his rival family, the Sauds, which is why it's now called Saudi Arabia, and although the British were instrumental in giving the Sauds Arabia, the Sauds and the British never really trusted each other, with Saudi officials even then looking to the United States for help and for support. Those links, of course, are still important, and they're still central to U.S. grand strategy in the Middle East. Faisal's brother was given the kingdom of a new place called Transjordan, where his descendant, I think his great-grandson, is still the king on the throne. This man's grandson, Faisal II, was king of Iraq in 1958, when he was assassinated by a coup that paved the way for the Ba'ath Party in Iraq. So as I tell my family, everything comes back to the First World War. Everything. Bliss wrote to his, uh, sorry, Westerman wrote, the net result in Syria is another bit of poison which will rot the Near East until the distant day when the Arabs and all the East shall definitively discard the unjustified assumption of Westerners embodied in the formula of white man's burden. Now, the United States got out of what Westerman called the Syria trap but only temporarily and not to anybody's satisfaction. British diplomats at the Paris Peace Conference proposed an international commission 
to undertake a fact-finding trip to Syria to find out what the Syrians wanted. Now, they didn't do this because they were concerned about the Syrians. They did this because they knew whatever the Syrians voted for, they would vote to reject the French, which is what the British were trying to get at that moment. The French were livid because they knew exactly what the British were up to, and they knew that no Syrians would express a desire for French protection. Faisal, by contrast, was so happy that he drank his first and only glass of champagne of his life. The result was a war between the French and the Syrians that also further divided the Druze, Christian, and Sunni communities and Shia communities apart. France also made the decision to make governing this part of the world easier to break away the mostly Christian provinces away from Syria and create the new nation of Lebanon. Syria, of course, remains what Westerman called that bit of poison with no easy answer in sight and no obvious role for the United States to play, especially after American rejection of the League of Nations. Tough enough? I'm going to give you one more quick case study. Why not? In red is the Shandong Peninsula. Prior to 1914, the economic concessions in the Shandong Peninsula belonged to the German Empire. It's Germany's main possession on the mainland of Asia, East Asia. In 1915, Japan mostly took it over. In the post-war period, Chinese officials came to the Americans and said, if you believe what you say, and national self-determination is to govern the future of peoples, the Shandong Peninsula is 99% Chinese. This should be the easiest decision you ever make. Japan, however, went to the United States and said, we were part of the winning coalition. We're the ones who physically went in and took the Shandong Peninsula. We want the economic concessions that had belonged to Germany. Almost all Americans believe that the Shandong Peninsula should go back to China. However, Japan had done three things that really complicate this. In the first place, they had agreed to participate in an international expedition to Siberia to try to defeat the Bolsheviks. The Americans needed Japanese support for that. Second, the longer they were there, the deeper the roots the Japanese army planted to make it more and more difficult for Japan to leave. And third, and I think most creatively, most cleverly, they demanded of Woodrow Wilson, the British, and the French something that they called a racial equality clause, that a clause would be put in the Treaty of Versailles that would say that all peoples and all races were equal. This puts the British, French, and Americans in an incredibly difficult bind. It sounds a little weird from a 100 years perspective. But if the Allies accept it, then the entire argument undermining the British and French empires, as well as the Jim Crow system in the American South, can come under legal challenges from the League of Nations. If, on the other hand, they reject the racial equality clause, then the Japanese can go to most of Asia and say, see, they really are fighting this war for imperialism. So the decision of Wilson, Clemenceau, Lloyd George to a lesser extent is to give the Japanese what they want in Shandong if they'll withdraw the demand for a racial equality clause. And the economic concessions in Shandong went to Japan. This is Tasker Bliss's response. I have never seen such a glaring case of secret diplomacy. The outrageous yielding to Japan on the Shandong question could never have happened if it had not been done secretly, the protests of the world would have prevented it. Thank God my skirts are clear, or at least my conscience is, of any of the wrongdoing. And he seriously considered resigning his commission in his fury at what the United States government had done. He's not the only one, as I'll talk about in just a minute. This decision gets announced on May 3rd, 1919, that the German concessions in Shandong will be given to Japan. For those of you who think that Facebook and Twitter have vastly increased the speed of communications, I know they have. That announcement was made on May 3rd. 
On May 4th, rioting began on the east coast of China and in Beijing, targeting Western and Japanese interests in particular. It's something called the May 4th Movement, which China today still considers the origins of modern Chinese nationalism, rioting up and down the east coast of Japan. Chinese students living in Paris surrounded the hotel where the Chinese delegation was staying, so they could not leave the hotel to sign the Treaty of Versailles. The Chinese diplomats saying, hey, we have no orders from our government on what to do, stayed in the hotel. China never did sign the Treaty of Versailles, just as the United States never ratified it. Incredibly unpopular and destabilizing decision. Wilson said, it is the best that could be accomplished out of a dirty past. Tasker Bliss's response to that, it can't be right to do wrong, even to make peace. And again, Bliss's words here to me are really insightful, really understanding of the destabilizing world that this peace process was going to create. It's interesting to me that in the next war, the Second World War, there will be no large formal peace conference like this. The one conference they do have at Potsdam in the post-war period, there are no small powers invited at all. It's only the Soviets, Americans, and British. There is no treaty that comes out of that conference, so Truman doesn't have to do what Wilson had to do in the post-war period. And the decision at the end of the First World War is not to redraw the borders, it is to redraw the borders, but also to physically move people into the new countries that they're going to be a part of. I'm afraid there's no high note on which to end this lecture. William Bullitt, who later became the first American ambassador to the Soviet Union, later American ambassador to France, wrote a letter to his mother in which he said, I'm going to go lie on the sand and watch the world go to hell. And in fact, after the Shandong decision, I'll not go to hell, but that's what he did. He resigned from the Paris Peace Conference, went down to the south of France, and sat on the beach. Tasker Bliss wrote this to his wife. What a wretched mess it all is. If the rest of the world will let us alone, I think we had better stay on our side of the water and keep alive the spark of civilization to relight the torch after it is extinguished over here. If I ever had any illusions, they are all dispelled. And as we know, 100 years down the line, the Middle East, Russia, and East Asia remain trouble spots. And some, if not indeed all, of the roots of these problems are in this era. I'm reminded here of Colin Powell's Pottery Barn rule. If you break it, you bought it. The United States is not really responsible for breaking this pot. The Europeans did that themselves in 1914. But it sure was broken. And by 1919, the United States had felt itself responsible for helping to put it back together. They believed that Great Britain and France were old powers out of ideas and out of the authority to do the job. They saw both the Soviet Union and the Japanese as offering alternative visions in conflict with America's own interests. Even if the United States tried to ignore the fact for another generation, and even if many Americans wish that it were not so, because of the First World War, the United States was now fully a part of the international security environment from Syria to China and more, a role that we continue to play a century later. I also think this supports the notion of those historians who argue that it isn't the First World War itself that creates a dissolution among the American people and the Europeans more generally. The, the official medals that American soldiers are given say on them the great war for civilization. The disillusion is in the inability of the post-war period to recreate that world and to create a better peace out of the war. Woodrow Wilson himself believed that war was a sin, but that sin could be redeemed by a righteous peace. By June of 1919, almost everyone who looked at the Paris Peace Conference realized that they weren't going to get that. We are still living with the consequences of those decisions a century later. Thank you, and I'll be happy to take any questions that you might have.
Oh, it works. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand. Again, we do have a, a pretty big crowd here. Uh, so if we see a lot of hands, let's limit ourselves to one question at a time, and we can always come back if there's enough time. So who can we get started? Right here in front. Yes, sir. A thoroughly depressing presentation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, made even, even worse by the fact that had Bliss and the others who were interested in solving the problem been able to solve the problem, been able to come up with something, Wilson was not in a position to sell it to the American people. Yeah, yeah so I'm reminded, someone just passed something to me by, by social media a little while ago that said that you can't treat history like a glazed donut. If you enjoy only the sweet part, you're still left with the hole in the middle. So what I think that means is we can't tell ourselves a history that makes ourselves feel comfortable. We have to accept the reality of history as it was. Um, what I think this really opens up is two kind of major American theories about what to do in the post-war world. There is the Wilsonian argument that American interests will be best served by creating positive, strong international organizations that the U.S. will be a part of. Then there's the argument by Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and many others that American interests are actually best served by staying as far away from organizations like that as you possibly can. What was interesting to me was in the last presidential election, you saw those two ideologies remain quite strong. So it's really a discussion that begins here in 1919, and it's one that has continued all the way through the century. So I take your point. Wilson, I think, thought he could either use the force of his personality or the force of the argument to win over the American people, and he was wrong, and with the consequences that we know about today. Thank you. Very interesting presentation. I saw a movie a couple years ago called The Promise, which was about the slaughter of the Armenians. That only stuck around for two or three weeks and it disappeared. Do you think the Turkish government had something to do with that? Not what I talked about here. Um, speaking only as an individual, not as an employee, what is it, Bill, I'm supposed to say? I do not represent the Department of Defense, the Department of the Army, the Army War College, or the Provost Jim Breckenridge to whom I report. Um, most historians, so the, the debate isn't, the debate is, was the death of the Armenians the result of intent on the part of the Ottoman government, or was it the result of neglect on the part of the Ottoman government? That is, did they send 1.5 million people across a desert without properly caring for them? Um, I think the consensus among historians, and I have not looked at the, initial, at the original papers, I don't read Turkish or Armenian, the, the, the Consensus, I think, of most historians is leaning much more towards intent. That's about all I can say. It's secondhand. I'm not a specialist in this in this area, but most of the scholars I know who work on it think intent is the way to understand it. Yeah. Yes, sir. Although the four powers after World War II um, learned lessons from how World War One was concluded, uh, could you find out why they did not go out of their way to solve the mistakes made in the Middle East after World War II? So it's really interesting. So I did do a book on the Potsdam Conference. So, and what I was fascinated by, and still really can't fully explain, three weeks of discussion at Potsdam, there is no mention of the Holocaust. There is no mention of what to do with the surviving Jews. There is no mention of the Middle East. They, they don't talk about it. I think there are two reasons. One, I think there is still an understanding 
that because Britain has the mandate for Palestine and Jordan, still legally and technically, Britain is the responsible official for the Middle East. They see it as an internal British problem. The other thing I think they see is that dealing with every little part of the world in 1919 is what broke the conference apart. What they want to do is deal with Germany, and they want to deal with the relationships between Britain, Russia, the United States, and to a lesser extent, France, although France isn't invited either. Right? France doesn't get to come. The Poles get to come for 15 minutes, they're led into the room, they give a talk about what they want, and then they leave. That's it. So I think that it's two things. I think one is the understanding that the United States just can't interfere with what they consider an internal British matter, and it will remain that way until 1947-ish, when the United States starts to realize the British are really screwing this up, we have to step in. And there is an understanding that they're just not going to go through a laundry list of the world's problems. They're just not going to do it. They're going to deal with Germany. They're going to deal with Japan. We're done. But it was, to me, fascinating. They don't discuss it at all. Uh, we talk about uh, disillusionment of liberal democracy uh, post-Cold War. Do you think that there's a case to be made for a disillusionment with liberal democracy in a post-Versailles, like in, immediately in 1919, or not? So that question is raised a lot. Will the world be better served if the successor states of the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and to a lesser extent, the Russian Empire, will those interests be better served if those states are democratic? Or will the interests be better served if they are reasonably enlightened autocrats? Right? The argument here is you can't take a people, a group of people, that aren't even a nation yet, and haven't even created themselves as a nation, and expect them to govern themselves. It's a little bit condescending. It's a little bit paternalistic. But the argument is you're actually better off if you get good strongman rulers in these places who help to move the states towards democracy. What I think happens is most Western leaders would prefer democracy, but they're okay if a non-democratic state comes in that does what it's supposed to do. So the problems in Central and Eastern Europe are really, so for example, Hungary gets treated much worse than Austria does at the end of World War I and the post-war peace treaties because Austria went the relatively democratic way Hungary had a Bolshevik revolution under Bela Kuhn for a little while. And the great powers want to send a message. If that's the direction you want to go, we're going to smack you down. If you want to become Czechoslovakia and try to look like something that looks like a parliamentary democracy, then we'll open up trade agreements with you, we'll exempt you from reparations, all that good stuff. So there is a sense that democracy would in the end be better, but there's also a clear sense, especially among the French, we want stability more than we want anything else. We need this part of the world to be calm. Anything else? Yes, sir. What was Bliss's role at Versailles? Why couldn't he get Wilson's attention? He is the uh, senior military advisor. He's a technical military advisor. Each country is allotted five official plenipotentiaries that come to all the meetings. Bliss is, is the military advisor to the US government, but he's not one of those five. So the attitude of, of, of Wilson, David Lloyd George, and George Clemenceau the attitude of all of them is the military guys are there to provide us with technical advice when we need it, but these are political decisions, and we, the elected officials, will make those decisions. The French are so, uh, Clemenceau is so adamant on this point that he lists, he, he hands in a list of six names, and his general, Ferdinand Foch, is listed sixth. In other words, you're on my list, but you're not coming to the meetings. And for that reason, in part, Foch played absolutely no role, except when the, the great powers would come to him and say, are you ready to invade Germany if the Germans don't sign? And Bosch, at the beginning of the conference, says, yeah, I got lots of soldiers, lots of stuff, we're ready to go. By the time you get to about April, May, June, 
He's saying, look, the Americans have demobilized, the British have demobilized, the French have demobilized. What do you want me to do? And in the end, Foch decided not to attend the signing ceremony. He supposedly said, this is not peace, this is an armistice for 20 years. And he said that in June 1919. Well, he was off by three months. And I think he, like Bliss, had a very clear understanding of exactly where the flaws in this process were. I have a question. How much of the problem is, I, okay, the French, British, US, Russians, maybe people don't like them, but how much of the problem is the people within the Middle East maybe don't like each other? Yeah. I mean, is, is that sort of a crux of a problem too? You know, from what I can see, nobody's really even gotten that far in their thinking. The, the thinking is these people have been run by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was this terrible, autocratic, tyrannical, whatever. Um, how do we fix that problem? And what they actually do, what they actually decide is that the people that live in the blue and the pink are kind of on the road to being grown up enough that maybe someday they can have democracy. So these are the urban areas. This is Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut, you know, the, the cities. So the idea here, and what comes out of the Paris Peace Conference, is that the British and French won't actually annex these parts. They will create something that are called mandates. And what that means is they will rule these parts of the world in the name of the international community until such time as these people are ready for self-government. So that's a way of saying to the international community, we're not just doing this for empire. In reality, though, it is, of course, the British and French who will make the determination when they're ready for independence. So what the British and French do, and some of the borders move a little bit, but for the most part, the borders are what they, this is the general outline of what becomes Syria, what becomes Jordan, this is the eventual outline of what they do in the early 1920s, something called the Bell Commission when they create this. And the idea is to try to create autonomous units that they can develop with urban centers and you know, educated people who speak French and whatever else. What they don't do, um, some of them are aware of it, some of them are not, is to say, hey, what happens if we put Kurds, Sunni, and Shia in the same state? That because they're thinking about it in terms of kind of participatory democracy. The same way you can have the Scots, the Irish, and the Welsh in the same state, you can put the Sunni, Shia, and Kurds in the same state. Right? They're doing a lot of kind of psychological mirroring and modeling here. And what's interesting to me, the next book project I'm working on, is what the British are intending to do here in Palestine, which is something very similar. Because at the Paris Peace Conference, essentially what happens is the British decide, hey, we don't want this to be international. We actually want it. So Lloyd George went to Georges Clemenceau, the French prime minister, and he said, I would like Palestine. And Clemenceau turns to him and just says, it's yours. And the reason is Clemenceau knew, I don't want to have any part of this. Right? This is going to be a mess, and I don't want French prestige involved. It's also the French right that wants to create this giant empire. Clemenceau is a man of the center left who mistrusts empire altogether. Clemenceau says, my map of, Europe is in, my map of, my map of the Middle East is in Europe. I'm interested in Germany. Right? So what he wants the British to do, I'll give you Palestine, but you've got to help me on the main concern that I have which is the rising, the still existing threat of Germany. So again, there are people who can see where the pitfalls are. There are people who can see where the broken ankles are likely to come from. There are fewer people who are able to figure out how to patch the potholes, if I can use a classic Pennsylvania analogy or metaphor. We have one over here. Yeah, Stefan. Hi, Mike. Good evening. I'm Coron Messina from Italy. Uh, of course, I'm interested about the southern part of the piece. What a what are, in your research, the thoughts, if there are Wilson, Bliss, on the southern part of the Austrian Empire, about the autodetermination of peoples 
German, Slavic, and Italian. Thank you. So there is a map that I should show you because I, I, I copied that one from, from Yale too of the Trentino, of the area that was Austrian and then becomes Italian in 1919. Um, Wilson is okay with the shift of the Trentino to Italy. And ba basically, the map that they draw, where they draw the line up to the Brenner Pass, is exactly along the line of what the inquiry recommends. I think it's because it's the obvious line, right, where the Brenner Pass goes and where the, where the ethnic division is. Um, in terms of the Yugoslav state, he's also okay. One of the problems is you can break Yugoslavia up into its constituent parts. You can create a Serbia and a Croatia and a Slovenia. The argument is if you do that, the state is too small to feed itself, and it's really too small to defend itself. It can't contribute to the overall security of Europe. So they make these decisions, and it happens in the South as well. They make these decisions that even though the Czech Republic and Slovakia are not the same, we're going to merge them all into one state. And the reason for that is if we create two or three states out of this, this map actually shows it as four states, it won't be able to defend or feed itself. So the same concern is going on down here, which is not that map, but this map, that you know, what they're going to do the light green says Serbia and Montenegro as it existed in 1914. The dark green is everything that they want to add to it. Right? And Wilson and most of the Americans are OK with this because it ought to create a secure state. What that indicates to me is they're thinking more in terms of stability than they are in terms of national self-determination or fairness. Right? Because what they're, what they're OK with is creating these states that are obviously not homogenous. They're obviously putting people who don't necessarily want to live together in the same state and hoping that it works out. So I think that's what they have in mind. And certain parts of the world, like Albania, they just decide the Albanians aren't a nation. They're not ready for this yet. They're going to have to go inside something else, which is a problem. But you know, if you've got a part of the world like this, and even this oversimplifies a very complex picture, what do you do? These maps are fascinating. They're actually hand-drawn. These colors are actually hand-drawn in which means that people were kind of making up their minds what color ought to represent what concentration of people. And I know Vongo from this part of the world, today, still today, this would be a very difficult map to draw, right? Of who lives where. A little easier today than 1919, maybe. Did that answer your question, Stefan? Yeah, okay. One right here. I want to thank you for a very uh, fascinating uh, presentation this evening. I, uh, I read your, uh, your book on the Treaty of Versailles over the last two days, and I want to thank you for writing a concise history. Thank you. I was actually <laughs> able to get through it. Uh, you've convinced us that a lot of mistakes were made uh, in, the, in the Paris Peace Conference. And I'd like to ask you, uh, uh, there's pl plenty of blame to go around here. Uh, from the American point of view, which was the greater mistake in your view? Uh, failure to ratify uh, the Treaty of Versailles by the US Senate or the decision to bring American troops back home from Europe as opposed to what we did after World War II? Well, the second decision is out of everybody's hands. So I just was, gave a talk at VMI, and I, the last slide I used is, a, is the headline of the New York Herald from November 7, 1918. It's before the armistice is even signed. Banner headline, what the, what the newspaper people call second coming headline, that says war is over, and then in the bottom it says troops headed home. This is four days before the armistice even gets signed. Now, I can explain, I think, why that is, why that Fuhrer is. The American people are fighting this war to protect themselves. They're not, in my view, fighting this war to try to fix this. That's not what they're doing. 
So as soon as they think the German threat to the American homeland is gone, we've done what we came to do, let's end this. So I think the second choice is out of Wilson's hand. I don't think he could have kept an American army in Europe even if he had wanted to. I think the pressure would have been too great. Um, I think the single greatest mistake, my own personal view, both American, French, British, or all three, all of them together, is thinking that a piece of paper was going to explain to the peoples of Europe why they had just gone through what they went through. In my view, no matter what they put down, it's insufficient to explain to a French mother why her son is dead. It's insufficient to explain to a British wife or German wife or Austrian, whatever you want to do. It's insufficient to explain why this cataclysm just happened. It just won't work. So what you see in the post-war period is this attempt that is not political, it's cultural, it's psychological, to figure out what, what happened, what just happened here. And that's why you see the rise of both Bolshevism and fascism, which in my view, their rise is explicable by the fact that they have an answer to that question. It may be a repugnant one, but they've got one. The democratic capitalist systems don't have an answer. So in my view, it's the, the, the great shortcoming is thinking you could write a legal document, compromised document, that would allow you to close the door behind you. And it's just not going to happen. What they should have realized is that the post-war period is going to be one of managing the post-war world, not one of saying, all right, we fixed it. That's, I think, where they missed it. And again, some people were aware of this problem, especially in Germany. We're aware that whatever you do, it isn't going to work. And now you have these two competing ideologies that are coming up with very different explanations of what just happened. Long answer to your very good question. Sir. Uh, to what purpose uh, did the government allow uh, the Americans to fight in the Russian Civil War? No, the United States did not want its people fighting in the Russian Civil War. There is an American expedition to Archangel in North Russia, uh, the so-called so Siberian expedition, which is a little bit misnamed. That is your standard kind of mission creep problem. They're supposed to go and protect supply lines, and then to do that, we have to do this, and so on and so on. Uh, it's never popular. Americans are under British command, which is also never popular. It's never clear what the mission is. But in terms of individual Americans going over, that's the last thing the American government wants to see happen. The United States is really, it's really clear from the primary sources. The British, French, and Americans simply have no idea how to read Russia. They simply have no idea how to understand what's happening in Russia. And that leads to the ancillary question, if you sign a peace treaty, even if it's a perfect one, and there's no German signature on it, there's no Russian signature on it, there's no Chinese signature on it, then three very large countries in the world have no stake in its survival. And that's a problem they're all aware of from the start. They just don't know what to do about it. You can't invite the Bolsheviks to the peace conference, and you really don't want to invite the Tsarist forces either. You're hoping something in the middle would emerge, and that middle under Alexander Kerensky fell apart. It didn't work. So they, they really don't know what to do about Russia. And one of the first books about the Paris Peace Conference, a book called uh, The King's Depart, actually superimposes a hammer and sickle over a picture of the big, uh, the, the, the big four meeting in Paris to, to give an idea of just how important this Russia problem was. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, do we have any other questions? Oh, over there on the side. Thank you. One last question for me. Uh, when Archduke Ferdinand was killed on June 28, 1914, all the great powers had alliances. And there was a gentleman in Brussels, I believe, who wanted to stop the war. And he went to Paris, and he tried to talk sense into all the nations to try to solve, stop the war in 1914. And he was assassinated by an artist. Jean Jaurès is the man you're referring to. That's it. Yeah. And then, of course, when it all started, 
I always say that that assassination probably cost 100 million lives. So it may have, but Jaurès is an interesting guy. Jaurès was a French socialist. Um, if you go to Paris today, there is a metro stop named after him in northeastern Paris, and you can still go to the restaurant where he got shot. You can sit in the same table, and there's a tile thing under you on the floor that has 31 July 1914. You can sit exactly where he was shot. What happens is Jaurès is in this meeting in Brussels at the end of, um, end of July 1914 of international socialists. What's interesting to me about that meeting, the socialists had been thinking about war in Europe for a long, long time. They had been thinking about how to stop a war in Europe for a really, really long time. At that meeting in Brussels, the only conclusion they come to is if there's still a crisis in late August when we meet in Vienna, we'll talk about it then. In other words, the crisis hits so fast they don't think there is a crisis. So what happens is Jaurès, this French socialist, who's very well known, he's known all over Europe. Everybody would have recognized his picture and known who he was. Jaurès came back to Paris. He's a member of the French Chamber of Deputies, which gives him the right to bang on the door of the president and whatever, and leader of a major party. And he goes into the French president's office, Raymond Poincaré, the two men had had a very bad relationship. And he says to Poincaré, what have you done? By the time I get off the train from Brussels, it looks like Europe's going to war. How did you screw this up? And Poincaré takes out all the diplomatic traffic, all the top secret stuff, and shows it to Jaurès, and says, hey, the Germans are mobilizing on our frontier. I ordered French troops 10 kilometers off the border as a Pacific sign to the Germans. They're demanding we surrender fortifications. They're demanding the right to fly over French territory. They're talking about war on us. What did you want me to do? And Jaurès takes the, looks at the documents, goes to a meeting at this restaurant, and he meets with his friends, and he says, look, I don't think, the, I don't think if we were in their position that we would have done anything differently than they did. We're going to finish our dinner, we're going to go next door, and we're going to publish a newspaper editorial urging the Socialist Party to support the war. It's a defensive war, therefore it's a just war. And five minutes after he says that, this man, Raoul Villan, sticks a pistol into the window and shoots him dead. So you're right, except that if he had not been shot, Jaurès's argument was going to be, we have to rally behind the government. And Poincaré, who hated Jaurès, went to the funeral and said, this is a true Frenchman at the funeral. So it's a little more complicated, though I, I fully take your point. And history does turn on these kinds of events rather quickly. So if, again, if you're ever in Paris and you want to do it, coincidentally, it's the same restaurant in Paris that served the first croissant. So it's called Le Croissant. And you can go there. It's under new management. I don't think the food is quite as good as it used to be, but you can still go there. And you can have a cassoulet, which is what he was eating when he was shot. All right, ladies and gentlemen, with that wonderful uh, restaurant review. I would like to invite Colonel Mangelsdorf on up to make a quick presentation. Well, super. Well, uh, Michael, thank you so much. You've, uh, you've truly uh, presented a pretty complex situation. And through, <laughs> through Westerman and Bliss, really kind of individualized it, brought it down to a human level. Two guys, impossible missions, impossible tasks. Uh, and in, in, in a roundabout sort of way, done what we kind of try and do here at USA Hack, in that you presented a very much larger complex issue through their individual stories. And so thank you very much for thank that. You. As is our way, we, uh, we would present you with this as a, uh, as a remembrance of tonight. <laughs> so thank you, thank you so much. much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. 
The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.